Greetings in the name of Christ. May his grace, his mercy, and his peace be upon each one. I was reading recently in John chapter 6, and we'll come back to this, but I'd like to have you hear these two verses. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. The title this morning is, Why Do You Follow Jesus? We have a new covenant, but that doesn't do away with all with all the challenges that face people. And I was struck in these verses by the idea that, that um, <clears throat> we can purpose to follow Christ, but for the wrong reasons. I'd like to read the, the, a number of verses at the beginning of this chapter. If you want to turn with me to John 6. <coughs> and I'd like to read the first 14 verses to give us a bit of the context of Jesus' words here in verses 26 and 27. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Okay, so Jesus on a boat, went over the Sea of Galilee, and he was there healing a lot of people, and then he kind of walked away, and these people were watching to see which way he went, and so they followed. I guess they went around the shoreline. Maybe some of them on boats. I don't know. Just picture it in your mind. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient. For them, that every one of them may take a little. He's saying 200 days wages. More than half a year. Wouldn't be enough just to give everybody a bite. That there were 5,000 of them. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, Here there's a lad here. He had five barley loaves and two small fishes. What are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, a number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled Twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves 
which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then these men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, the prophet that should come into the world. And the next verse says that uh, they got to talking among themselves. And he said, hey, let's make this fellow our king. And so Jesus just simply walked out of the crowd and went up on the mountain by himself. His disciples went on across, went back over the Sea of Galilee, back over to Capernaum. And it was evening then, and it soon turned dark. And Jesus then came to the disciples walking on the water. At first they were afraid. The other gospels give a little more detail. They thought perhaps it was a ghost, a spirit of some deceased person. But Jesus said, no, it is I. You don't need to be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and they were then at the other side. And then the crowd caught up with him again. He didn't quite know what had happened, how Jesus had gotten there, but he said, how'd you get here? And then Jesus gave the response that I read from verses 26 and 27. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor, labor not for the meat, or as it's used here, it doesn't mean meat as we use the term, it just simply meant food, food in general. Labor not for food that perisheth, but for that food which endureth unto eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. We can sense a bit of frustration in Jesus' words. It seemed that no matter how well he taught, how much he explained of what he wanted them to understand, they didn't quite get it. I had to think of the incident that we have in, um, oh, where is it, Mark? I'm not sure right now, but the, the ten leper, lepers that met him and they begged him for healing. And Jesus simply said, well, you go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they realized they were healed. And one of their number, a Samaritan at that, went back and thanked Jesus. And I can imagine that Jesus sighed, doesn't say so, but I think he sighed and he said, where are the other nine? In the context here of, of these verses in, in 26 and 27 here in John 6, Jesus had multiplied a boy's lunch. Five loaves, I mean, I think of a dinner roll, maybe even not that big, just a little ball of dough baked and two, not just fish, small fish so I'm picturing a bluegill about that long and Jesus the boy donated it but Jesus took it 
and he broke pieces off and handed the disciples and they went around among this group of people and somehow there was always more. They gave and they gave and they gave and says until they were satisfied. It wasn't just that they had a bite and they had to make do with that until they were satisfied and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Definitely a miracle. The people were impressed. But rather than focusing on who this was and what it meant to accept him for what, who he was, they just were focused on tomorrow's meal. Hey, if we could have Jesus as our king, we, our worries are over. We've got food from now on and who knows what all else. See, we're always focused on throwing off the, uh, the, the rulership of Rome. If we have Jesus as king, we can live on easy street. You know, people aren't all that much different today, though. We can be critical of their response. But do we ever think, you know, where is Jesus in all this? Has he checked out? Is he unaware? You know, when Elijah had that contest with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel, he made fun of them. He said, hey, he said, you need to talk a little louder. Why, uh, you know, maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's off on a trip somewhere. Do we ever accuse our God of that, whether consciously or unconsciously? This crowd wanted to gather around Jesus for the food they could get. And I'd like to ask the question of us this morning. What are some of the wrong motivations for following Christ that we might have? We can pick this apart and see how they got it wrong. But I think it behooves us to question ourselves. Why do I follow Christ? So I'd like to point out four things here, four bad motivations, wrong motivations for following Christ. And then at the end, I want to treat a few questions, a few reasons that are good motivations for following Christ. Four wrong motivations. Things, position, power, and emotion. Some follow Christ from things. That's where the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel comes in. Yeah, if you, you follow Christ, you'll have everything you ever wanted. You know, the, the follower of Christ deserves a Cadillac and a mansion and life on easy street. 
That's not the way life was for Jesus. That's not the way it was for his disciples. And frankly, that's not the way it is for us. Now, God has blessed us in many ways, but that those blessings should never constitute the basis of our faith in God. To where when things do turn south, we begin to question his veracity. Today, we don't have too much of a problem with going hungry. I imagine everybody here will have some food waiting for them when they get home. But there are many other material things that we may journey after. Personal gain, material things, a better job, a career, a business, a nice house, and all the toys that our culture prizes. But God hasn't promised those, but he has promised strength for the day, rest for the weary, light for the way. I like that song. One of the reasons we're warned about the desire to be rich is that out of that desire comes all sorts of evil. Out of a desire for riches can come all sorts of evil actions and desires. You know, things in themselves has no eternal value. <clears throat> if it can burn or be destroyed, it won't last for eternity. Material things can be used to build God's kingdom, and we should do that, or they can be used to build a kingdom for ourselves. I'm reminded of a recent memory verse. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That is a promise that we can hold on to. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear any circumstance or person. Would we have Jesus to be our king so that we can expect him to supply our whims? Do we feel that God has somehow betrayed us when our life isn't as smooth or easy as Brother Joe's or as the Philistine down the road? Mark Twain illustrated that very idea when he has Huckleberry Finn take a rather skeptical view of Christianity. Huckleberry one time said that he didn't put much stock in prayer. He said he tried for some fish hooks one time and nothing came of it, so he was pretty well done. Well, that's simply a reflection of the author. But I hope it's not a reflection of us. That we feel like God has let us down sometime. And so we kind of have our doubts. That wasn't Job's response. I'm sure Job had it worse than any one of us 
have ever had or will ever have. But he said, though he, will, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He wasn't a loaves and fishes sort of follower. He was in no matter what. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not a Santa Claus. He is the sovereign of the universe. The seat of all wisdom and knowledge and creative power. And while he does supply our needs and he is an attentive and caring father, we are not the ones in charge. He is. And so, though he may slay us, yet we must trust him. Let's not serve him on the basis of how well he grants our whims. Sometimes no is the best answer we can get. Sometimes no is the best answer we can get. Just as those of you who are parents, no doubt, have recognized many times in responding to your children. They don't really understand. And so we need to say no. And sometimes we don't understand. And God needs to say no. I can think of several times in my life where now in retrospect, I'm so grateful that God said no. And no doubt there are many times that I don't even know what those things are. Another unworthy motivation following Christ is the desire for, petition, for position. We know the story of James and John and how they came to Jesus and they wanted a place of prestige and power. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatever we shall desire. You know, hey, we'd like a blank check. And Jesus said, well, what do you want? And they said unto him, Grant us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Matthew adds the detail that their mother was part of the plot. You know, that points out a weakness that parents have. We generally tend to take up for our children, whether it's pushing them forward or defending them. But that's a place where we may tend to have a blind spot. Be careful. You know what? God can take care of your children just as well as you can. In fact, I would say better. And so... When it comes to pushing them into something or defending them as a mother bear, be careful. Don't be Mama Zebedee. But 
they wanted this place of, of position and of, of prestige. <laughs> that would be simply wonderful when Christ took the throne and one of us could be on one side, one of us on the other. They were willing to share it around that far anyway. There were two sides to Jesus, but there wasn't room for everybody to be there. And they wanted that position. You know, there was a number of times when the disciples would squabble among themselves about who was the greatest. You know, hey, I was with Jesus when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, I don't know what all they said, but I can imagine there was some discussion. Like maybe they're a little more sanctified than all that, but they still were fussing about who was the greatest. And one of these times was when Jesus was going right, going down to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he had to tell them, look, to be great, you need to be humble. You need to be a servant. Do we ever think that our deeds for Jesus entitles us to some position of honor? Attitudes toward and about ourselves are critical. Spurgeon said this, Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. Don't be proud of, of your uh, race, your people, your background. Don't be proud of your face, your looks. Don't be proud of your place, your position. Don't be proud of grace, the gifts that God has given you. Just in one of the parables that Jesus gave, he said, you know, when it's all said and done, just say, you know, I've just done what was expected of me. Just tried to fulfill God's will. And I think that's a good answer. Yes, we should. Use the gifts that God, the gifts and opportunities that God sends our way. Let's recognize that in the end, we're pretty unprofitable servants. And only God deserves honor. God's advice to Jeremiah was this. I don't know exactly what the context was, it'd be interesting to know, but he told Jeremiah, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Don't do it. Let's follow the example of our meek and humble Lord. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. A slave. Let's not follow Christ for things, let's not follow Christ for position, nor should we follow Christ for power. The book of Acts tells us about one named Simon. And he was there as the disciples were preaching and teaching, and he observed as they laid their hands on people, and people received the Holy Spirit. 
And it identifies, the scripture identifies Simon as a believer, as one who was baptized. But a little later, he kind of went around and talked to one of the disciples a little bit privately. And he said, hey, he said, if you give me that power to give the Holy Spirit to people, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Now, the Bible doesn't give that figure. He offered him money, it says. And Peter came down on that man. He said, your money perish with you. He said, you dare not think that the gift of God can be purchased with money. You know, it's not a bad thing for people to receive the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. That's God's will and God's plan and what God does. But to make a franchise out of it, I'm reading between the lines here, but I think maybe he intended to get some reimbursement on his investment. Was usurping God's authority. God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to those who love him. And that was the reason Peter was so harsh. He said, you're stepping into God's territory. And we dare not do that. But he wanted to exercise power. And um, Peter said, absolutely not. That is wrong. And it does seem like Simon Peter backpedaled, I mean, pardon me, Simon backpedaled pretty quickly. And he said, oh, he said, I, I'm sorry. He said, I, I didn't realize. I think I'm rephrasing this. But he, he said, oh, pray that none of these things will happen to me. He said, I, I, I retract that. You know, Jesus rarely rebuked people, but he had some particularly critical words against those whom he saw as hypocrites. We could turn to Luke 20. I'm not going to go there and read those verses necessarily, but, you know, the whole chapter, while these, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were identified there as people who kept attacking Jesus. And there was three or four encounters there in that chapter where, where they tried to trick Jesus or they asked him difficult questions or made accusations against him. And he, um, at the end of the chapter, Jesus made this statement. So it says, then in the audience of all the people, he said this publicly, where everybody can hear him. And I'm sure there were Pharisees and scribes standing there. He said this to his disciples. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the high seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast which devour widows' houses and for a show or a pretense make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. That's a strong statement. 
We know that Jesus had to be disturbed in order to say something like that. But he was pointing out how wrong these people were. They had, they put on a pious front, but their hearts were wrong. And they, you know, Jesus said one time, well, he said, you do as they say, but don't do after their deeds. They wanted a position of power and honor, and they wanted respect, and yet they were so disreputable. Perhaps that's about as low as you can get as to foreclose on a poor widow's house. Jesus expanded that condemnation when uh, they're in Matthew 6. He pointed out that even good things can be done for wrong motives. He said this, Therefore, when thou dost doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say to you, they have their reward. They have all they're going to get. Tell you what, I'm not serving the Lord for what I get here, but for that which awaits. Some follow Christ seeking for an emotional experience. They seek some emotional high, whether that's from listening to a gifted speaker or hearing some exquisite music or a wonderful story of what God did. But it's merely on an emotional level. An emotional high is not the same as spiritual growth. When Jesus met there with the Samaritan woman, as is recorded in John, the fourth chapter, after they had talked for a bit, and she talked about, you know, how, how worship should be, you know, we worship here in in this mount, Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say, well, you know, you need to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And he just said, look, time is coming, and it's now when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, something from the heart. What we're talking about in our Sunday school lesson this morning, this new covenant where God writes his laws in our heart, and we respond from that. And that is true worship and a true relationship with God where it's something from the heart and not just a matter of some emotion. An emotional high is not the same as spiritual growth. <clears throat> we all have emotions. Emotions aren't bad. They're just the natural part of being human. But emotions should not be the primary focus and the anchor of our lives. That our emotions go like this. You know, we all have ups and downs. Some of us a little less, some more. And yet, that is not our anchor. Shouldn't be the basis of our opinions. I feel bad about it, so it's wrong. I feel good about it, so it has to be right. It's not the basis for following Christ. Good feelings can bring a lot of pleasure into life. 
I think God designed them that way. Bad emotions can drain us. But in those situations, we should focus on doing the next right thing rather than just allowing those emotions to control us. Good feelings can bring a lot of pleasure, but they are a terrible master. If they control us, then we're going to end up where we don't want to be. Christ, Christ did not come to give us the warm fuzzies. He came to redeem us. No matter what that cost him, or no matter what it may cost us. He does give us peace and joy, but not always happiness. Jesus clearly pointed to something other than emotion when he spoke of the basis of a good relationship between God and man. And that is, on our part, worshiping the Father in spirit from the very depth of our being and in truth based on what is true and right. He doesn't mention how we feel. I believe it was Sister Evelyn that I've heard has told her children and said, well, I didn't tell you to consult your feelings. A good response. So, things, position, power, emotion are all unworthy reasons for following Christ. I hope that you're not pinning this on somebody else. I want you to think about you. And I want to think about me. Why do we follow Christ? You know, it's so much easier, just like with our face, it's so much easier to see somebody else's than your own unless you actually stop and look in a mirror and take time to evaluate and do something about it. There are many good motivations for following Christ. We should follow him because he calls us to. That call is for everyone. We see it. When he called the disciples, and so Peter left his nets and Matthew his office and others what they had, and they followed him. He calls us to take up our cross, whatever that may be, and follow him. We should follow Christ, but for the right reasons, and first of all, because he calls us to. And may we hear his call clearly. We follow Christ because of love. Because he has loved us with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31. We love him because he first loved us. We should focus on the depth of his love. How deep the father's love for us. And then we love him in return. 
By following him, we can experience redemption from the guilt of sin and freedom from the power of sin. A wonderful reason to follow him because of what he does within us. Being compliant to his voice, especially as we hear it in scripture, will accomplish both redemption from the guilt of sin and freedom from the power of sin. Christ's redemption is not just a matter of forgiveness, but it's a matter also, it is forgiveness, but it's a matter of empowerment to do that which he calls us to. As we follow Christ, we can be a blessing to others rather than a detriment. You know, we notice that those who follow Christ for the wrong reasons, you know, those scribes and those Pharisees, Simon, other illustrations that we used, people who kind of looked at things wrongly, but we see that their selfishness usually amounts to suffering for others. May that not be us. As we follow Christ in spirit and in truth, we can fulfill the mission that he brought to earth, that he began, and we can fulfill the commission that he leaves for us. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Let us lay down any unholy motives we have for following Christ and sincerely and wholeheartedly walk in his steps. May God bless each one.